Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I am doing a mini episode. I just returned from a vacation away in the mountains of North Carolina and things have just been non-stop since we returned home catching up on work here on the homestead and then we've had some house issues with our septic and some electrical issues and so I just haven't had as much time to dedicate to my podcast episode this week but I wanted to give you something so what we will be discussing today is broody hens and what it means when we say that a hen has gone broody and then I'm also going to share updates from my apiary so what news I have what's going on in my colonies and the issue that I'm having once again with robbing bees at the end of that I'm going to give some highlights of my time away in North Carolina So if you are interested, stick around until the end and I will share some news about my vacation away. So to start with, let's discuss broody hens. So what is a broody hen? What does it mean when you see someone say that their hen has gone broody? Simply put, this is a hen who has decided that now is the time to reproduce. She wants to incubate a clutch of eggs until they hatch into cute little pee-pee chicks. And if you look up information on broody hens, most of it is focused on how to break hens of their broodiness. And this is partly because hens will go broody even without a rooster present, which means that she is going to try and hatch infertile eggs, which obviously is not going to happen. And since broody hens only leave the nest to eat, drink and poop once per day, this period of time is really hard on their little bodies. And so many chicken owners are eager to get their hens back to normal. It's probably also a large focus of discussion because broody hens stop laying eggs and most people want their chickens to continually provide us with this source of, I want to say free, but we all know keeping chickens isn't that inexpensive, but affordable, delicious eggs. How can you identify a broody hen? To be honest, they're very hard to miss because they will have put themselves in the nest box or somewhere they've made a nest for themselves and they will absolutely refuse to move. If you try and move her, she's going to hiss, growl, she might even viciously peck you in defense of her clutch. Now, some broody hens will allow other flock members to lay eggs in her chosen nest spot, at least until she has accumulated what she feels is a full clutch. My current broody hen stopped allowing the other girls in when she had 12 eggs to sit on. After a clutch has been collected, the broody hen will then jealously guard her nest and usually keep other chickens out. And I say usually because if she's low on the pecking order, she might have to give up the space. And this often results in fighting because it seems as if broodies like to choose the favoured nest site. And because of this, and because fighting is bad for your hens and it can also lead to broken eggs, it's often recommended to remove the broody hen and her nest to an area away from the flock with her own source of food, water and predator protection. Now, when you find yourself with a broody hen, the main question to consider is, do you want chicks? 
If you do, then you can just let her do her thing. If you do, but you don't have a rooster, you can buy fertile eggs or trade with a local homesteader or farmer and place them underneath her. If you don't want chicks, you can try the following techniques. Breaking a broody hen can be as simple as just removing the nest site or keeping her from it so you could close the coop during the day after kicking her outside. Now, a determined hen might establish a nest elsewhere, even one that's hidden away somewhere on your property if you free range your flock. So this isn't a foolproof method. Often, it's recommended to cool her abdomen, as this seems to trigger a reset of the hormones that led her to this point. I've read articles that recommend placing cold water bottles under her or even ice cubes, but it seems as if the most discussed and possibly the most effective method is moving her into a crate. This crate should have no substrate or bedding and it should be elevated at least a few inches from the ground. This allows air to circulate under the hen and will eventually break her of her broodiness. The benefit of moving your broody hen into this crate is that it also keeps her safe and secure while you have banished her from the coop and therefore the nest boxes. You can provide her with water and food. And I would say that you're probably going to have quite a racket because initially she is not going to be shy about making her displeasure known. After a few days of this timeout period, you can let her back into the coop. If she immediately sits down on a nest and starts growling at you, she's not yet over her broodiness. So back in the crate she goes for a few more days and just repeat this until you reach a point where she is back to normal. Now I'd always read about broody hens but I've never experienced it until very recently. Cheddar, my Jersey giant, suddenly decided it was time to raise a family and she took up residence in the nest box on the floor of the coop, which is always a favourite. Apparently the elevated roomy nest boxes built into the coop wall are just not good enough for my fussy chickens. Now since I have a rooster, I decided to let her do her thing and I left her to it. But after a few days, I noticed that some of the eggs in her clutch were breaking. What seemed to be happening is that the other hens would come in, push Cheddar out of the way, lay their daily egg on top of the older eggs, and then their body weight would break those top eggs onto the clutch beneath them. So after cleaning up the nest area, much to Cheddar's displeasure, I decided to move her to a private location. I took a medium-sized dog crate, the one that I use when I'm making my chicken hospital for sick hens, I place an enclosed nest box inside so it would be very similar to what she was used to, carefully transferred her clutch of eggs, put in food and water and covered the whole thing with a tarp. I then placed this in the chicken run for additional predator protection and so that she could still hear the other chickens. Well, Cheddar was not having it. Not only was she extremely upset by this move, to the point where she flew into the ceiling of the crate and then tried to squeeze herself through the bars to the point where I was genuinely worried about her. But she also refused to sit on the eggs. I think she finally reached a point where she was sort of half on the clutch, half off them for maybe an hour or so, even though I gave her more than 24 hours to adjust to the change. Ultimately, I decided that this level of stress was really bad for her, that the eggs probably weren't going to be viable if she wouldn't sit on them. And so I just let her out. And of course, she immediately went back to the original nest site and refused to move. 
So I guess I've learned the lesson that chickens don't read the guidebooks on appropriate broody hen behavior. Now, sadly for Miss Cheddar, the broken egg saga continued and I started becoming suspicious about the viability of the eggs. So I took out a flashlight and I did something called candling, which is basically when you hold up a light source to the egg and you look through and you see if you can find veins or signs of fertility or life. Now, after candling all 12 eggs, only two showed signs of being fertile. So I threw away all the duds and I returned the two possible good eggs to her. When Cheddar first went broody, I decided to wait on my plan to bring pullets home since I was hoping that I would have a clutch of sweet little chicks within 21 days from when she started sitting on the eggs. That's how long it takes for a chick to hatch. But based on this really bad fertility rate and the fact that Cheddar is not as attentive as she used to be as a mother, she's taking longer breaks from the nest, although she is still broody, I have decided that Operation Pullets is back on. And I'm delighted to say that I did in fact receive the coop I had been eyeing for my recent birthday, so I can finally set up a proper quarantine coop for new additions. I'm super excited. As soon as I get that coop up and ready, I will be going out to the hatchery to get myself some pullets. And I will update when the new girls have been acquired, which will hopefully be within the next two weeks. And with this recent loss of Bobby, I definitely want to try and get some more Easter eggers or just coloured layers in general. Maybe an olive egger or a copper moran or the ones that lay those really dark chocolatey coloured eggs. So moving from chickens, let's talk about hive news. What's been going on in my apiary? Well, once we returned from our vacation, I was eager to get back out there and find out what was going on. Aside from the usual concerns, such as looking for signs of swarming, how the honey production is going, whether there's signs of queenlessness, etc., I was particularly eager to learn whether my nucleus colony that I had found with a virgin queen, now had a fully mated laying queen, and whether my queenless split, which has consistently failed to raise a new queen, had finally succeeded. Well, I was delighted to find an abundance of eggs and young brood in my nuke box, and equally disappointed to learn that my queenless colony yet again failed to raise a queen of their own. And so I decided to split this queenless colony in half and use the newspaper method to merge them to my newly queen right nuke and hive number four, which was the first successful nucleus colony I had that has since been sized up into a 10 frame Langstroth. Now, during my first inspection, I was able to merge a deep box from the queenless colony to hive number four. However, at that time, I'd been out in the hives for about two hours because I was doing mite tests and inspections and I'd attracted the attention of robber bees. And the response was so aggressive that I had to close everything up and spray the hives down with water. So as a result, I didn't merge the remaining part of the queenless colony to my newly queen right nuke as I didn't want to risk opening up more hives. I returned the next day And I found that the queenless colony and hive number four had been very badly robbed. There was a pile of dead bees by the entrance and on the ground and a large amount of wax on the bottom board. When I checked on the honey super, it was 100% 
empty. And I was kicking myself for not taking the two full frames and some of the partials when I'd had the chance the day before, because I really didn't expect this kind of response. Even last summer, we had almost constant robbing during this time of year. I never saw this many dead bees and I never saw this much stolen honey. I'm genuinely concerned that the queen of hive number four might have perished during this attack, but I can't risk opening the hive to check right now because all those bees consider this a food source and they're coming in to check on it. So instead, I worked really fast to merge the queenless colony to my newly queen right nucleus colony. And then I covered this hive, which is now hive number five, as well as hive number four with damp bed sheets. So covering a sheet with a sheet like this will stop the robber bees from able to get into the hive, but it also helps keep the hive cool. Now I went out and I removed the sheets this morning and I monitored for signs of robbing and so far things look to be pretty good. I'm still very very worried about these colonies but I don't want to risk going into them until this period of robbing is over. Some other things that I did to deal with this is I placed an order for robber guards for all the Langstroth hives which will be picked up on Friday and I also reduced all the entrances. And this includes plugging up the top entrances. So there's just one small space on the bottom board or landing board that the guard bees can defend. And this makes it much easier for them than having to worry about guarding the upper entrance and a very open lower entrance. Really, I just feel like it's always something with these bees. It's been hashtag bee drama since day one, but Every situation is a learning experience. So as much as I am kicking myself and feel like I inadvertently caused this, it's also giving me a lot to think about and a lot to prepare for in the future. In more positive news, my top bar hive seems to have been completely unfazed, maybe even completely unnoticed by the robber bees. And I don't know if this is because the entrances are so much smaller or because the whole colony isn't exposed when I do an inspection. But whatever the reason, this colony is still just a delight to work with. And the fact that the robber bees seemed completely unaware of them meant that I took the risk to do a mite check without drawing any attention to the honey stores that they had. In fact, it was the most peaceful inspection of the past two days. So instead of rushing through it so I didn't attract more robbing bees, I was able to relax and go into my happy little zen bee space while I was inspecting this colony. And I'm very pleased to say that their mite count is excellent. They had a level of one Varroa to 300 bees, which is really, really low for this time of year. In fact, all my tested colonies, bar one, had the exact same result, just one Varroa mite to 300 bees. And this is so good for this time of year. And especially considering that I'm sure this robbing behavior isn't new. I'm sure it's been building for a while. And robbing is a really good um, time for Varroa to jump onto that bee and be taken back to the hive. So it can definitely increase Varroa transmission. Now, the one outlier of my apiary was the queenless colony. Now, this was before I broke it apart and it had a reading of five Varroa mites to 300 bees. Now, this is still within acceptable levels, 
But the fact that I'm breaking them apart to merge the colonies with colonies that have such low levels will hopefully deal with the problem. And I will be able to say if this has been successful by continuing to do a test each month and then treat if needed. So this recent bout of really awful robbing might have led to an increase in mite levels and I will know that for sure when I test next month. As for a honey harvest, I've I've missed the boat. I just timed things badly. Right now I have just two deeps and three medium frames of honey that I pulled before my vacation and I'll go ahead and I'll extract those. I was hoping for more, but with that one super that was robbed so badly... I really don't want to take from my stronger colonies since we're in such a bad nectar death. I'd really rather the bees had the opportunity to use the honey if they need it and focus on staying strong until we move into fall. And, you know, it's funny because upon returning from North Carolina... I felt like the cooler mornings here and the smell of the air at night indicated that fall was creeping up on us, but I dismissed it as sort of fancy and me just longing for cooler weather. And so I worked the apiary as I would during late spring and early summer. And clearly that was a big mistake. I should have trusted my gut and taken the precautions I would usually take in the fall when the bees are testy due to the dearth. So that is a good lesson learned. Now, if we're lucky, we'll get a good nectar flow once the goldenrod starts to bloom in the fall. Last year's fall nectar flow was very, very short and a bit dismal, but I'm cautiously optimistic that this year will be better as we have had better rainfall through summer. Now, if I don't have any luck there, then I'm just stuck with my pitiful pitiful harvest of honey but the good news is I know many local beekeepers that I can get delicious raw honey from to see me through until next spring and I've always said you guys know this I've said this from the very first episode that I got into beekeeping for the bees and not for the honey and now it's time to really prove that because the honey just ain't happening if I want healthy strong colonies and really that is what I want more than anything is to get all of my colonies strong enough to survive the winter and I really shouldn't be surprised that I don't have much honey this year because I lost all but one colony over winter and from that colony I have produced two additional ones then I brought a nuke in and a package so Really, I'm looking at what is basically the majority of first year colonies with only one second year colony. And it's completely normal in your first year not to have surplus honey to take for yourself. That's what happened my first year. It's happened to many people. Last year, I was able to get such a good harvest because it was second year for my colonies. So fingers crossed that I can just keep these my levels low, I can prevent more robbing and I can build up these colonies to a point where they are strong enough to get through even the roughest Ohio winter. And I will definitely keep you all updated on that situation. So that's really all my homesteady news right now. Um, Otherwise, I was going to talk a little bit about my vacation. So For anyone who maybe isn't interested in that, now would be a good time to switch off the episode. For those of you sticking around, 
I went to Old Fort, North Carolina, which is about an hour from Asheville and 25 minutes from Black Mountain. We rented a sort of cabin slash house which had absolutely incredible mountain views that we just soaked up every morning and evening. Some highlights from the trip were that we both saw our very first black bears in the wild. So my husband and I have been hiking in areas where black bears are known to be for absolutely donkey's years at this point and never once have we seen one. But this time we found one adult And then later on in a separate sighting, we saw a baby and we could hear that mama was in the bushes nearby. So that was really, really exciting. And the first sighting of the bear was on my birthday. So I've been calling it my birthday bear. Another highlight was this area of North Carolina has a lot of really beautiful waterfalls and some of them are challenging to get to but others are a little easier so we sort of saw a variety and we got some really amazing photos and had just an incredible time. Now Asheville is kind of a mix of hippies and hipsters that was the vibe I was getting so there's a lot of like really awesome local coffee shops stores with you know, pottery and crafts from locals, as well as a variety of gluten-free, vegetarian and even vegan food. It was really fun to see that most of the restaurants and cafes were sourcing their ingredients from local farmers and homesteaders. So that was really nice. And actually on our first day there, we found a bakery that had the most incredible gluten-free desserts. And I was more than happy to treat myself. So if you're ever in Asheville, check out Old Europe Pastries for absolutely decadent desserts and really good coffee. Now they do do regular by that I mean normal gluten containing desserts as well as gluten-free. And all I can tell you is that the gluten-free was so good. My husband actually had something that was gluten-free and he couldn't taste the difference. So check out Old Europe Pastries if you're ever in Asheville. And speaking of places to recommend, if you get a chance to visit downtown Asheville, I obviously have to recommend Asheville Bee Charmer. Now, this is an incredible little store. They have uh, two locations, I believe. And we went to the one in downtown Asheville. And they stock a variety of different honeys, most of which are local. And they actually have a honey tasting bar where you can sample to your heart's content. So I got to try all different kinds of honey from um, poplar honey to sourwood, which is a local speciality. Uh, They have blackberry honey, which is not flavored. It's just nectar from blackberry bushes. Um, Tupelo honey from Florida, which is always a favorite. And oh, many, many more. Some that I've never heard of before. Now, it was so hard for us to choose what honey we wanted. But ultimately, we got the blackberry and the sourwood honeys. And I also picked up some really fun little bee stickers to put on my various things at home. So I just cannot recommend this place enough. Um, It's so much fun to go in there. It's all raw, local, unprocessed honey, apart from the Tupelo, which is from Florida. So if you get the chance, check out Asheville Bee Charmer. Now, as diverse as Asheville is, my favorite place to shop ended up being Black Mountain. And I think the reason why is it's a much smaller town. So it's quieter, it's more peaceful, it's less sort of crowds and 
touristy. And they still have plenty of great places to eat, drink and shop. So I found this amazing yarn store there where I picked up yarn to continue my recent obsession of crocheting tiny bees. And we also found this um, restaurant that makes gluten-free pizza. It's called My Father's Pizza, which I really recommend. It's some of the best pizza I've had in years. But to be honest, if we're talking food, the crown jewel of the trip for me was the Blue Ridge Biscuit Company in Black Mountain. And the reason why is because they make gluten-free biscuits. Now, I've never had a proper Southern American style biscuit before since I was diagnosed with celiac disease before I moved to the US. And in England, biscuits are like cookies. So they're hard things that you dunk in your tea. They're not these big, bready, soft deliciousness. So I have often drooled over what my husband has eaten because he grew up in the South, so he loves himself a good biscuit. But I've had no real success when I've tried to make them with gluten-free flowers. So when I saw that this place had gluten-free biscuits, we went there. The first time was right before they closed, so they'd run out for the day, but I did have the best gluten-free waffle I've ever tasted. But we made a note, we went back the next day early in the morning. I had myself a gluten-free biscuit with cheddar cheese and bacon. And it was the most decadent thing I've ever had in my life. And it was incredible. And they had a line going out the door of people waiting for these biscuits. And not just the gluten-free ones, the regular ones. So if you're in Black Mountain, check out Blue Ridge Biscuit Company. Now, it wasn't all smooth sailing, sadly, for our vacation. About midway through, uh, I got a little sick. Um, In fact, it was my birthday and I was sick. Um, We think we ate something that did not agree with us. My husband bounced back within hours, but I think because of my celiac disease, I'm much more delicate. And I was kind of down and out for about 24 hours, but it wasn't a complete bust. We took the time to just relax, enjoy the views, do some easy walks. Um, That was the day that we saw our first bear, my birthday bear. So I just can't complain. And once I felt better, we went on to have many more adventures, including a walk around Lake Tomahawk, which is in Black Mountain. It has incredible views. And while we were there, we watched an osprey hunt. Ospreys are my favorite bird of prey. We saw a duck with a gaggle of ducklings and we made friends with some larger ducks who desperately wanted us to feed them, which we did not. Now, my biggest regret from this trip is that I wasn't able to tour any of the local farms. Most in the area do offer public tours, but I wasn't aware of how quickly they book up. And since we planned this trip on such short notice, I wasn't able to get out to visit the alpaca or dairy farms that I had hoped to tour. But I have bookmarked them. I've made a note. And next time we will plan in advance so I can get out there and I can see their setup and what they're doing. Now, upon returning home, I immediately threw myself back into the homestead. I missed it all so much. I missed the smell of the air in the morning, the view of the beehives, the crazy noises of the chickens, the snuggles of my puppies. I even missed how comfortable our furniture is. And I realized that we've super nested here. And because of that, it's hard for me to be away from it. So I was very happy to return. In fact, we arrived Friday evening and I immediately started cleaning out animal cages, checking on the various babies we have right now, which is frogs, skinks and snakes, and then planning the next day's agenda. I cleaned and sorted and fussed and was happy as a pig in muck. 
That night I actually slept better than I have in over a week and I just feel immeasurably blessed to return to this homestead. I will say that part of the stress of trying to go on vacation is that finding a farm sitter is a real struggle. I have looked in my area and there don't appear to be anyone who is licensed and insured to care for our varied animals and so we have to rely on friends and my husband's students. This time we were fortunate enough to have my sister-in-law stay here at the house and she took on all the animal care. Now she's been volunteering with a farm sanctuary in her home state of Florida for almost a year and so she absolutely knows what she is doing. We did give her a crash course on the reptiles and she knows our dogs well and they absolutely adore her so there wasn't much to do there. I wrote detailed instructions complete with pages of vet numbers and emergency contacts as well as a daily checklist and it it was a lot when we ran through it together I realized just how much stuff there is that I do on a daily basis but it did the trick you know she had no problem looking after them she did an incredible job and we returned to happy and healthy critters In fact, she actually likes my daily checklist so much that she has asked me, jokingly, I think, to do one for her day-to-day life to help her stay organized. (laughs) Not sure I'm going to do that, but that is nice to know that my control issues led to banging to-do lists. And finally, I just want to say that, um, you know, the vacation was wonderful I'm really glad, despite all the anxiety leading up to it, like preparing the animals for our time away, preparing all the lists and double checking everything and making sure they were well fed and all that good stuff. Um, I am glad we went. I do feel like it was helpful for us to reset, but I am still struggling with my depression. And so I'm increasing my antidepressants and um, just hoping for the best. So starting tomorrow, I'm on a new dosage. And I'm just, you know, clawing my way back whenever I can. I'm refusing to give up. Um, I'm doing my best to hold on to the good moments. I write them down so I have tangible proof that they happen. And ultimately, I feel that, and I, I think I said this the last time we came back from a vacation, despite my struggles, despite the depression and the anxiety, I feel immeasurably blessed to have what I have. And I'm really doing my best to remember that. So I hope that for those of you who have really identified with my struggles with mental health, I hope that you can find the strength to just keep putting one foot in front of the other like I've been doing. I try and remind myself that everything changes, even these moments of sadness. And I am just hoping for better days for all of us. And so that's it for this mini episode of the podcast. This is actually episode 50. I kind of wish I had done something a little bigger to celebrate, but you know, I just, I'm so pressed for time since we got back. We're having some house issues, like the septic systems having an issue and we've had some electric issues and it's just been non-stop. So this was the best I could do. I hope that you enjoy it. I will be back in two weeks with a more fleshed out episode on a topic that has yet to be decided. I will have updates on how my chickens are doing, updates on the beehives and hopefully something interesting to share with you in regards to beekeeping or homesteading. So until then, stay safe, stay hopeful and as always, hug your hens and then wash your hands. 
Thanks so much for listening. Take care.